Good morning. Happy Sabbath. So good to be with you today in the house of the Lord. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this privilege and opportunity that we have to worship you in your house. We thank you for Jesus, the revelation of the character of God as manifested on Calvary. We Thank you for your goodness towards us and your tender mercies. And we pray that as we pause for a few moments to reflect on you, that you would inspire us, instruct us through your Holy Spirit. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have not already, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. As James read our scripture reading this morning, Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, this is the only story from the childhood of Jesus that is recorded for us in the Gospels. This is when he was 12 years of age. The next time that you see him, Jesus is about 30. So we don't have a lot of Jesus' life, but this is a fascinating story because of what takes place. He's 12 years old. It was a transition point between childhood and manhood in Jewish society. It was the equivalent of turning 18. And in Jewish culture, he was considered a son of the law. And this was going to be the first time that Jesus was going to camp meeting. 12. It's more like the equivalent of GC, Passover, All the Jews from around the world would be gathered there. They would caravan together, and this was a high point in the Jewish annual cycle. So Jesus goes, and according to the desire of ages, he realizes who he is. The 12-year-old, watching the Passover take place, watches the lamb being slain, placed on the altar, and he sees himself. What an epiphany. Desire of Ages tells us that he is wrapped in contemplation as if to be solving a great problem. Twelve years of age realizes his true identity, that he is the Son of God. His mission to the world is being manifested before him at this Passover at the age of twelve, and he is so consumed in thought and meditation that he is left behind in Jerusalem. His parents think that he's in the caravan and they come to the evening ritual about to break camp for the night. And in my imagination, I imagine that Jesus was very helpful. And so his helping hands aren't there. Mary perhaps says, Joseph, have you seen Jesus? No, I haven't seen him. I thought he was with the group. And they go out to the relatives and acquaintances and say, have you seen Jesus? And then the sinking feeling sets in. He is left behind in Jerusalem. What a horrific journey that must have been. Parents, imagine, you ever lost your child? At the mall, at the supermarket, all of these visions of what may be taking place, and it was a seemingly eternal three days. 
We don't have children yet. So the only thing I can equate it to is, is our dogs. We, uh, like smart dog owners on July 4th, thought, oh, let's have a family outing. So we went to Grand Rapids downtown, took our two golden retrievers, thinking they would enjoy it, sat down right by Grand River there, and the fireworks went off right in front of us. We had an education that night. Their eyes lit up like saucers, as frenzy, and our female went crazy. She slipped out of her collar, and we're in downtown. Thousands of people went underneath the feet of, of all these people, and before I knew it, I was chasing her through downtown. Good luck, never caught her. And that was a horrific night. Uh, we went everywhere, got a hotel, went the next day, up and down, it's like a needle in a haystack, went to the police station, no avail, put, put the lost dog thing on Craigslist, and it's, it's, it's striking, the parallel. I mean, three days went by. I had to go back to work in, in East Lansing, and uh, then we got the phone call, uh, she ended up in someone's backyard. Paws were raw from running all over the place. And uh, we, we have her back, praise the Lord. Now that's a dog. We're talking about a child. I don't think any of you, if you lost your child, would go back to work. Right? Now, this is from the Justice Department. The Justice Department estimates that an average of 2,185 children are reported missing every day. And uh, the article I read, ABC News, is quotes, and I quote, parents always wonder if they could have done something to prevent this. They always play back the last day or the last week. And here's some quotes from that article of parents of missing children. Listen to this. This is a nightmare, says one parent. You don't wake up out of it. One other parent says, at this point, I just want some closure. I need to know where she is. And if she's not alive, I need to know. The article says parents of missing children say that the pain is excruciating and psychologists confirm that the loss can be even greater than when a child dies. So I just imagine Mary and Joseph, three days, Grand Central Station, New York City, in a terror. They had sleepless nights. I imagine them running through the streets of Jerusalem, disheveled hair, tear-streaked faces, and just in a frenzy, looking for Jesus everywhere. The most horrific, eternal three days as parents. And then they're like, let's check the seminary. Walking through the seminary, Old Testament department, Zarvages says they hear a voice. And they say that there was no voice like Jesus' voice. Earnest, yet full of melody. And I imagine Mary's there and she says, wait a minute, that voice, shh, 
it sounds like Jesus. And they peer around the corner, and there is their 12-year-old son surrounded by professors and PhDs, department heads, and they're taking notes. Jesus is having a theological dialogue. And the Bible says that they were amazed at his understanding. Now, it's amazing the, the transition that takes place. You, you ever see a parent that has lost their child at the mall, and they've been searching for hours? Perhaps they found them, find them at Barnes & Noble, and they're just chilling out, reading. And the transition from fear or from relief to frustration, right? Where have you been? I've been looking for you everywhere. I've seen this. I've experienced this. Oh, you know, the parent transitions from relief to frustration. And let's pick it up. Mary's word to Jesus after he fi she finds him at the seminary in this theological discussion. In verse 48, here it is. So when they saw him, the parents of Jesus, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? I like the NASB. Why have you treated us this way? In other words, inconsiderate, irresponsible. You should have texted. <laughs> it's been three days. Do you know what you put us through? Why have you treated us this way? You can sense the frustration in the, in the tone or in the nuances of this question. Why have you treated us this way? Why have you done this to us? And look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. We've been a basket case these three days. We've been frazzled. It's been horrific. Anguish. Terrible. Why did you do this to us? And you would think that Jesus would alleviate their anxiety and answer the question, but it gets worse. Look in verse 49. And he said to them, why did you seek me? <laughs> Parents, how would that go over? <laughs> huh? Long time visiting, you know, the long time looking for your child. Let's say hours, then you find them, and they're not even looking for you. They're just relaxing. And then you're like, why did you do this to me? And then your child looks up at, you, at you with an innocent face and says, why were you looking for me? <laughs> Woo! Any red-blooded parent would have an aneurysm. <laughs> About to blow a gasket. Wow! I, wow. And then it gets worse. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Mm. In other words, you're not my real parents. Or, I answer to a parental authority that is higher than you. Wow! This is a challenging dialogue. 
And then the next verse says, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. They're like, huh? What are you talking about? Never mind, let's just go home. And he went down with them to, to Nazareth, and he was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. What a mysterious story. Out of all the stories they could have put in the Bible, they put this one from his childhood. And there's more questions than answers. You see, it was very easy for Mary and Joseph to get familiar with Jesus. Hmm. After all, saw him take his first steps. Saw him go from milk to solid food. It's like any other child in some respects. Develop, grow. He was their son. But he was more than their son. They thought that they had God all figured out, and then this incident happens, and the Bible tells us that Mary stored these things in her heart. And I want to circle back and highlight for our emphasis this morning our message. I want to circle back to this verse from the NASB. Why have you treated us this way? The words of Mary to Jesus. Why have you treated us this way? Have you ever asked God this question? Hmm? Why? Why didn't you save my marriage? Come on now. Why didn't you save my dad from cancer? Why me? This is a question that all of us have or will ask at some point in our life. Why have you treated me this way? The, Mar- the words of Mary to Jesus. And, and the thing is, in this verse, there is no answer. Notice that Jesus responds to a question with two more questions. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? There's more mystery in this verse than the answers. Why have you treated me this way? The words of Mary to Jesus are words that we ask in our experience with God. And friends, there are questions that we many times have in our relationship with God, that there are no good answers. I think of this disease called progeria that inflicts children. They never get beyond three feet tall. They die in early adolescence. It hyper-accelerates the aging process. Where, where do we come up for answers like this? And I, and I know the classic answers, right? The devil, great controversy theme. These are good theological questions. The results of sin. But I have sat with families that have lost their children. And it seems so insensitive when that raw moment at the memorial service when you're sitting there and you're trying to come up with words to to help, to comfort. 
I just can't bring myself to say, theologically speaking, you just can't articulate it. Where's the explanation in these times? I just finished a book a couple weeks ago by Paul Miller. It's on prayer. He tells the story how him and his wife were expecting a child. They were excited, as all parents are, and were praying for a healthy baby girl. She's born. The delivery is a nightmare. The doctor administers too much Pitocin, which induces labor. The baby comes out, almost suffocates. He said the baby was blue. And he called his mom and he said, there's something wrong with our baby. And then the baby caught pneumonia. And then she was diagnosed with a rare form of autism. where, Where are the answers for these types of things? And Dostoevsky in his book, says, if all must suffer to pay for the eternal harmony, what have the children to do with it? Tell me, please. What about the children? What am I to do about them? You know, it's fair that if I make a mistake, I reap the consequences of that. But shouldn't God intervene when children suffer? That's the question that Dostoevsky is asking. I mean, what, what purpose does it play? Even in the great controversy, I mean, what did they do? And so you, you're faced with this challenging question. Yes, we don't believe that God originated evil. We believe that God gives free will. But it's kind of like this analogy. If you see a child in the middle of Seward Highway and a semi-truck is coming down at 70 miles an hour, and you are there, and you have the ability to swoop in and save the child from being run over, wouldn't you do it? And this is the question that Dostoevsky is asking. Look, shouldn't God intervene when children suffer? What purpose does it play? My last district, I received a phone call from a member that their son was driving home that night, lost control of the vehicle, crashed into a tree, and died instantly. Went to the memorial service, said a few words, and then we walked down to the site where his car had lost control and where he had died. Afterwards, we sat in the living room, and I want to tell you, I didn't know what to say. Sometimes you feel like the friends of Job, just sitting there for three days in silence. They should have probably stayed silent in that situation. But these are questions that we all ask in regards to God. Just when we think we have God all figured out, Something happens in our lives that leaves us devastated and we are tempted to rethink everything that we ever thought about God. So what do we have to hold on to in these moments that we have more questions and answers and we ask like Mary, why have you treated us this way? Perhaps there's a circumstance in your life, a family member, 
that is filling you with grief because of the situation they're in. Perhaps you have a personal challenge in your life, a relationship, a marriage, a, a disease, whatever it may be, this, is, this thing is weighing you down and you are looking up to heaven and you're saying, Lord, why? Why is this happening to me? And you have absolutely no answers. What do you do in these situations? And this is where the Bible takes us. When frustrated by the mystery of God, trust the character of God. This is where the Bible is leading us. In other words, yes, this is what God is. This is what we know. But there is an infinite amount of God that we don't know. That's the reality. We, we can't fit God into our little box and say, you know, this is God because you're up for disappointment. Mary and Joseph thought they had Jesus all figured out and then they go to the Passover. They ask questions, no answers, just mystery. God is bigger than our conceptions. God is bigger than what we think he is. But in regards to his character, these are things that he has clearly revealed. There are going to be some things that happen to us in our lives, this side of heaven, that we have more questions than answers. I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., walking around that museum from the third floor down, and I want to tell you, I had a lot of questions. Absolutely no answers. I simply could not rectify the senseless genocide of six million men, women, and children. No answers. When frustrated by the mystery of God, trust the character of God. Steps of Christ, page 106. God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence on which to base our faith, his existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by the testimony that appeals to our reason, and this testimony is abundant. Yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have opportunity, while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence on which to rest their faith. Now the question is, has God given us evidence on which to believe in God's character? The cross. I shared in our Sabbath school this morning, one of my seminary friends asked me a question that kind of made me smile. He said, you know, when we're squeezed, our character comes out. You know what I'm talking about? That person cuts you off. Character. You, you, you want to know what someone is like in character? Be in the most intense, stressful situation with them. You'll see all kinds of things coming out. And he asked the question, what do you get when you squeeze God? He said, Jesus. When you squeeze God, you see Jesus. The cross, an intense moment for God you see the revelation of his character as never before. This is who God is. The most profound revealing of God's character at the cross. And in those moments that there's things that we don't understand, God appeals to us, hang on this. God has always and will always have your best interest in mind. Amen? You believe that? He's love. He is good. 
There's going to be things in your life that you simply don't understand, but you have to go back to this and say, Lord, I don't know why this is happening. I don't have the answers, but Lord, I believe that you are who you revealed yourself to be at the cross. You care for me more than I can ever imagine. You have my best interest in mind. And I believe that someday, even if it's not this side of heaven, you're going to reveal to me why these things have happened. I love from Desire of Ages 2.24. Listen to this. God never, God what? Never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. In other words, when we stand with God in heaven on the sea of glass and we look back from the eternal perspective, we'll say, Lord, I would not have been led any other way. Wow! All the tragedies, all the heartache in our lives, we can look back and say, Lord, I see your divine hand through all of this. It's like a golden thread that is loomed into the fabric of my life. Your story in my life, Ministry of Healing 474, in the future life, the mysteries that here have annoyed and disappointed us will be made plain. I don't understand how it's going to be, but I believe because God is good and God is love that one day as I look back on my life, the tragedies, the heartaches, the frustrations, the things that just seem to crush me to my very soul, I can say, Lord, thank you. The curtain will be pulled back and we'll be able to see as never before. I want to read this excerpt from William Lane Craig in his book gives this personal account of someone that he visited at a nursing home. On this particular day, I was walking in the hallway of a nursing home I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst, some of the worst cases strapped onto carts or onto wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of her cheek, and it had pushed her nose to run one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I also later learned that this woman was 89 years old, that she had been bedridden, blind, and nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less, le less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. 
but I put a flower in her hand and said, here is a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held a flower to her face and tried to smell it and then spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know, I'm blind. I said, of course. I pushed her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, I stopped the chair, Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks. I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. It was not many weeks before I turned, it turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder, and I would go, with her, go to her with a pen and paper to write down the things she would say. During one week of hectic exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 different directions at once with all the things I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know whether it's day or night. So I went to her and asked, Mabel, what do you think about while you're lying here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there for a moment of the difficulty of me thinking about Jesus for even five minutes, and I asked, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied, and slowly and deliberately as I wrote, and this is what she said, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know, I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled, and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without explanation of why it was happening. And she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to talk to anyone, she had power. I think of Annie Johnston Flint. She wrote these words to a hymn, going through pain, cancer, blind. Here's what she penned. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. 
our God ever yearns his resources to share, lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of the infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. God may not give you all the answers, but he has promised a down payment of grace. Equal and exceeding the heartache that we go through this side of heaven. We can trust that God is good, amen? We can trust in his character. And in those moments that we have more questions than answers, God says, hold on. I'm gonna bring you across, and I promise you that when I turn your head and you can look back, you'll see that you would not have been led any other way. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for that revelation of the character of God at Calvary. We thank you for this reference point that we can always look to, that in those moments that we just ask like Mary, why am I being treated this way? In those moments of frustration, anguish, and we say, Lord, I just don't understand why this is happening to me. Lord, we thank you that you give us more grace to endure that you carry us in those moments that we cannot walk. And we thank you for the promise of your character, that you are good, that you are love, and that you have our best interest in mind, and that when we stand with you in heaven, we'll look back and say, Lord, thank you. I would not have been led any other way. So keep us, Father. In these moments, support us with your grace. Sustain us. We claim the promise that what you started in our lives, you'll be faithful to complete. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.